Okay, this is the voiceover for the opener of the voiceover radio show. This is take one. In a world where laughter was king. Uh, no in a world, buddy. What do you mean, no in a world? Um, it's a podcast. Oh, okay. In a land that... No in a land either. In a time. No, I don't think so. In a land before time. It's two guys talking about voiceovers. When everything you know is wrong. That's wrong. A girl. No. Two girls. Well, maybe Andrew, but come on. Now, no. more than Stop it. a renegade cop. A cop? A robot renegade cop. You're fired. You're fired. No, you're actually fired. I'm fired. Get out of the booth, Jack. No, I like it in here. There's no take two. There's no just a little more purple. Warts and all, you've downloaded the VO Radio Show. Welcome to episode three of the VO Radio Show. And uh, my name is Andrew Peters. And across the way is... Is Robbo. How are you going? I'm good. How are you going? Mate, I'm going really well. Busy week for me and you. Yeah, it's been pretty busy here as well. What have you been up to? Oh, look, I had a, a, a big job for one of the big advertising agencies here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it was a, a client reel for a big presentation they were doing. So that's kept me going for the last three or four days. Lovely. And you've been doing that at their place? No, I've been doing that here at home in the home studio, which has been nice. So oh, yeah, well we done. Uh, actually recorded down the line using uh, not Source Connect, but another one called IPDTL. Yeah, IPDTL seems to be very popular. Yeah, it's it's probably the the little brother of of, um, of Source Connect, um, especially in terms of cost. Yeah, um, I run both here. Um, just so happened that the the voice talent I was recording was using IPDTL, so we hooked up that way. But um, look, to be honest, I always get the voice to um, if they can to to roll over the recording anyway, and and I usually use get them to send me that and use that anyway. But, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, Which one do you nice. find uh, better out of the two, IPDTL or Source Connect? I think I think for me, Source Connect is more stable. Um, I don't seem to have as many issues as I do with IPDTL. But from a customer service point of view, if you, I found because IPDTL are just starting up, they're really keen to keep everybody happy and their response times and and um, commitment to get stuff fixed seems to be better than Source Connect. So, you know, horses for courses, I guess. Indeed. Hmm. But of course, there is the uh, the old ISDN, which is still chugging along. There is. That's always There's always that option. I actually don't run it here at home. I don't have a box, but um, Source Connect always has that option, which is nice. Yeah, so you can actually do yeah, a patch. Yeah, you can patch through to, a, to an ISDN box yeah, yeah. if someone does. So, so yeah. In a, world. In a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com Now, uh, now talking recording voiceovers, yep. we were uh, we, we were going to have a bit of a chat about um, about mic and preamp combos, weren't we? Yep. So I guess I guess a good place to start would be, what do you, what do you run? What do you run well, at your place? Well, it go, I go back, I'll go back to where I, it started because I, mm-hmm. I was setting up the studio here and, um, oh, actually not even here, it's another place I was living. Mm. And I got some advice from uh, a guy who was uh, importing a lot of stuff into Australia. And I said, look, mm. this is what I want. It's got to be clean. Um, it's got to be really, you know, like it's got to be cover the whole signal so I can get out really nice files to, to clients. Yep. So he sold me a uh, Grace preamp, a Grace M101. 
It's a mm. half rack preamp, mm. and it's super clean, like really, really clean. And um, a Microtech Gefell M930, but I mm. ended up buying the M930 Art, which was uh, they only made eighty of them, and uh, they were made as the uh, for the 80th anniversary of George Neumann. And that, that is a really, like, it is super clean, like really yeah. clean. Some yeah. people think the gray sounds a bit hi-fi. Yeah. But it depends. If you, if you, if you're music, like into, you know, you want a bit of dirt in the vocal, mm. probably not ideal. But uh, for mm. us, I think it's, it's great. Yeah. Like if I'm an engineer and I get this complete file. Yeah. You know, you're an engineer. You'd probably be happy with that. You can do anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. But now yeah. I've changed. I've, uh, I've still got that, and I run that, and uh, there's a couple of other microphones I, I have. I have yep. another Microtech Gefell, which is the M92.1S, which is a, a valve or tube mic. Yeah. And I've also got a shotgun here, which is not the traditional uh, 416 Sennheiser. It's uh, the Rode NTG3. And okay. I run the NTG3 through the Grace. Because that yep. kind of complements quite well. Because the the, the NTG three has got a bit of colour to it, but the grace mm-hmm. is transparent completely. Mm. And then I run. I've got another preamp, which is uh, an Australian made preamp, and it's by a guy called Sebastian, uh, who calls himself Sebatron. Mm. And uh, and I came across that completely by accident about mm. eight months ago, and did a bit of research. Had no idea. I didn't even know it was Australian. I just saw one. In a, in a secondhand music store the guy was trying to sell yeah. and then jumped online, had a bit of a look around and found um, a, a, a store in the US called Sound Pure mm. and they do a lot of testing online as well, like you know, videos of different gear. And they swear by these things. They were saying that they were just unbelievable. And then I started reading all the testimonials about, you know, how much they use in Nashville. Mm. And Nashville is probably one of the last places on the planet that still record music live, you know. Yeah. Um, so I thought, oh, okay, this is really interesting. So, uh, I, and I, and I, then I found out they were in Australia. So I went down and met the guy, Sebastian, mm. at a cafe, had a bit of a chat and came home with a, a two channel, a Sebatron preamp, which is a, a tube, a valve preamp. Yeah. And, uh, it is, I've got to say, it's for, in fact, that's what I'm using now. This is the M92.1S uh, this is the microphone, uh, yeah. going through a, the Sebatron. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the VMP two thousand E, I think it's called, yeah. and I can't see it from here. And uh, and I'm also cheating a little bit because I'm running through, um, and this is the really crazy bit of kit, the uh, the Neve ninety two twenty two fifty four R compressor, nice, which is very Beatles. So there you go. This is very Beatles, <laughs> <laughs> just in keeping with today's theme. Yeah. So what have you been looking at? Look, I, uh, I'll i be honest, I, I and you can probably hear it, I, I record this program on a SM58 purely because sitting in the middle of the, uh, the control room trying to run Pro Tools and do everything else it needs doing as we're recording and keep some sort of silence maintained was difficult. So, um, so I just record on that. But my usual setup when I have voiceovers in the booth, uh, I have a TLM 103. Uh, and that runs to a Drama 1960. Nice, uh, yeah. Which uh, is a valve machine, which sounds really nice. And then in, then into Pro Tools from there. So um, that's my usual setup. I also have a, a Sennheiser 416, the classic voiceover microphone, um, 
which is sort of a sound uh, radio, which is more radio friendly, I guess. It sort of gives me a better starting point for that sort of ra- classic radio sound that you want as opposed to a more natural voiceover tone or sound that I might use for, you know, corporate videos or for for more less less processed stuff, shall we say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's my setup. It didn't, my, the only thing that really changes for me is my mic choice. Um, but uh, I've been doing a bit of a look around on the, on the net um, just to sort of see what other people like to use. One interesting one I came across, which, which has a price tag of about $1,900 US or probably that's what, about 2300 or so Australian dollars, uh, is a Neumann TLM-103. Um, and an A-Design P1, which is just a half-rack mic pre, which is has your basic 48-volt, your pad, your phase, and your gain, plus a DI, if you wanted to, to plug something else in there direct. Um, there's been a lot of reviews I've read about how nicely that seems to work. So if you're at the bottom end of the uh, of the scale, there's one to think about. And of course, you know, honestly, with Neumann, how can you go wrong, really? Mm. Um, to skip through a couple of the sort of more mid-range, this this one we're talking around three and a half thousand US, or again four four one four two Australian dollars. Um, again, the TLM one hundred three rears its head, and they've teamed this one with an Avalon VT seven thirty seven SP, which yeah, is that's, a vacuum that, tube. That's very standard pre. kit. Yeah. And uh, you know, as you, as you're aware, obviously the 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 reviews of all that are um are very nice indeed. Um, and around the same price tag, uh, if you're not a huge Neumann fan, uh, the um, AKG uh, C414XLS yep. um, is a very nice microphone. And it's been, in this review, it was teamed with the Focusrite yep. Red Seven. Uh, and is that the new Focusrite Red series, or is yeah, that the-, the Red series? Yeah, it's a it's a full rack uh, mic pre. Yeah, because I know uh, that the original Red Red series are very very desirable, but then they mm. kind of discontinued them, and now they're bringing them back again. So yeah, that's right. Well, this is um, this combination seems to have a few uh, a few nice comments of people sort of sending back some good feedback on on that combo. So um, so that might be one worth looking at. And then to skip all the way to the top of the range, uh, people have started talking about. Uh, a microphone that I'm unaware of, to be honest with you, the Horsch RM2J. Yeah. So um, that uh, that's getting some good reviews, and in this in yep. this actual review, it was teamed with a Millennia STT1. Oh, ST, the yeah, the STT1 Millennia. They're they're beautiful. Yeah. They're um, yep. stunning preamp. Yeah. Well, you're paying for that one because that's around the nine thousand US mark. So um, so yeah. But there's a couple that I um I sort of did some research on and and sort yeah. of found plenty of good <laughs> reviews on in terms of combos. I mean, everyone's ear is different. Everyone will have their own ideas. And um, perhaps if you do have your own ideas, why don't you jump onto the VO Radio Show website and um and leave us a comment. Let us know what your favourite combo is. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to hear. It was funny with the Millennia, the SWT one. Mm. Because uh, I looked at one of those some years back when I was yep. um, looking for another preamp, mm. and they—I can't remember what they, what sort of money they were now—but I think everything's gone up quite dramatically. So yeah, but the yeah. best—I uh, think the best uh, chain I've ever worked on, wa- wa- worked with, apart from my own, of course, um, yes. was the um, was the the new U forty seven, which is the Telefunken U forty seven. Yeah, and that I think that microphone is at least. 10, I think. Yep. Uh, and then I don't, I can't remember what the preamp was, 
but it was some handmade yeah. preamp, you know, like a beautiful piece yeah. of kit. And the sound was yeah. amazing. And in fact, a friend of mine who was yeah. working on the, which is the equivalent to the um, the Oscars in Australia, this is some years back, mm. Mm. Uh, he was doing a bit of post-production and he was sent a file from a studio of mm. the voiceover they were using for a, a couple of the pieces. Yeah. And he called me and said, uh, do you know the guys down at the, the studio? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, give them a call and find out what, what sort of microphone they're using. He said, it sounds amazing. So nice. And so yeah. I called them up and said, what are you using? I'm just curious. And they told me it was the new Telefunken U47, which I think was reissued about three years ago or so. Yeah. But that that's uh, yeah. a beautiful mic. Having said yeah. that, I did actually take my um, Microtech 92.1S Mm. Uh, down to that studio, and we actually AB'd the uh, Telefunken U47 and mine, yeah. uh, running it through the Neve desk, and it, was, it wasn't that far off. The capsule, wow. I think, is very similar. I think they use in the U47, I'm pretty sure they use the M7 capsule, which is the same as this yeah. Microtech. Yeah. Um, the only thing that was slightly different was there was a bit more top end on the Microtech, um, but otherwise it was very, very close. Mm, mm. And that's the mic, as I said before, this one I'm using now. To not be bashful, I actually, my favourite setup is is actually the one I have here. I, I love the sound of the drama and, and the 103 together. I'm, I, um, I'm yet to find a sound that I'm happier with. Um, and I've worked in a few of the studios, obviously, around Sydney and... And a couple of other places over the years. Um, I, I just, I don't know, I just find it nice and clean. Um, I love the tube sound from the the drama. Yeah, um, I know a couple of studios that use dramas, and I and I've actually worked in those studios using the drama. Mm. And most run, funnily enough, not not the one hundred three, but they use the U eighty seven Neumann. Yeah, uh, running through the drama, and it does sound beautiful. And in fact, yep. I tell you what else they've run through the drama, which is kind of odd, but works really well. Is mm. and you've also got the other one. Is the um, the four one six Sennheiser? Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds great through the drama too. Well, I mean, God, let's face it, the 416 is almost standard equipment for voiceover recording, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, it's been used on so many things it probably shouldn't be used for, but it seems to be yes. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, mine gets used for Foley, mine gets used for voiceover, mine gets used for anything else you can think of along the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you've got a, a bit of an interesting interview to get to this week, so we should probably get going, eh? Okay, well, here it is. This is the interview I did a couple of weeks back with uh, one of the Beatles engineers. He joined uh, Abbey Road in 1965, and I've got a feeling the first album he worked on was Rubber Soul. But he'll tell us all about that. His name is Richard Lush. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. Radio. TV. Sound design. Find it all at voodoo-sound.com. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window Wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for, all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? 25th of June, 1967 
a live broadcast with uh, probably the, one of the first words uttered, supposedly, which I've never actually heard, but it starts with roll tape, Richard. Is that correct? Probably. I think there's an are you ready, Richard, in there somewhere too. Are you ready, Richard? Well, everyone's probably scratching their head going, what are they talking about? It was an extremely nervous moment in our lives, all our lives. Indeed. Well, the moment was uh, a live broadcast, a satellite broadcast of the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. And um, sitting there as the engineer was our guest today, Richard Lush. And you would have been, well, filling your pants, I think, is probably a term we'd use in Australia. Yes, yeah, we were all very, very nervous. There was a BBC van outside which was beaming the uh, satellite sound and pictures. And we lost communication between the van just before we started recording. So George... Martin was very um, sort of nervous. We had to literally, you know, just go and hope that it was happening out in the van somewhere. But um, everybody was nervous. John was nervous. Well, all the Beatles were nervous. I think we all we were all very glad when it was over. Now that was uh, a place you ended up. The question is, how you got there in the beginning? Gosh, that was '67. I started in '65, about June, July '65. But before that, as a kid. What was your interest in music? Um, I used to play a guitar, and um, I had a few Shadows records, and I was quite interested in them. Um, Bruce Welsh lives, lived uh, quite near us in Harrow, and i sort of seen him a couple of times. So there was a bit of an interest there. Apart from that, I mean, at, at school you were either a, a Beatles fan or a Stones fan, Everybody was Beatles, so I went Rolling Stones. I must admit, I did the same thing, but the interesting connection there, I've just realised, you're from Harrow. Yeah. I, I grew up in Chessant. Oh, right. And uh, my neighbour in Berry Green was Cliff Richard. Well, of course, Cliff was a Cheshant boy, yeah. Yeah, there you so go. So it's, uh, no, it's a small world. Yeah, but so uh, they were, like Cliff, before the, well, the Drifters, who became the Shadows, came along, yeah. he was in a skiffle band that was really big in the, in the late 50s in England. Right. Were you into skiffle? No, well, I quite like Lonnie Donegan, I must admit. He had a couple of records that were quite good, and obviously I think the Shadows were very influenced by by him. My sister's boyfriend at the time uh, liked sort of jazz. There was quite a big, you know, Chris Barber, Ackerbilt, these sort of people. There was quite a, a, a large following of jazz music. So, I mean, the early pop music, of course, in England was in fact... Um, Cliff, I guess. Yeah. Bill Haley started it all. Uh, Bill Haley, Gene Vincent. Because you worked on the Cliff Richard Records summer holiday, uh, I think. Yeah, I did, before I actually worked with the Beatles. So, yeah, and I've sort of continued to be kind of friends with them over the years. I saw them a couple of, couple of years, three years ago or something, when they came to Sydney. Yeah. For that um, final tour. And uh, it's been a long journey. It has. It's, it's interesting, though, because there's one thing being like a fan of music or playing a guitar, but yeah. actually making a career out of it is a pretty big jump. So what inspired you to get well, into a studio? Was, there was actually, well, we're going back to Cliff Richard again. There was actually a Shadows album, and on the back of, on the back of this album was a, sort of a write-up for the recording. And I thought, oh, that'd be, that would be interesting to actually work where they recorded it i mean this friend of mine had a tape recorder at the time and he used to record me playing guitar every now and then and fiddle around with tape machines so i went along for an interview 
and uh, they didn't actually have a job at the time, but they uh, they were interviewing a few people, and uh, then they uh, sent me a note letter about oh, probably about two months, three months later, and said, "Come for another interview. There might be a job for you." So two of us actually started on the same day. Peter Mew went on to do mastering, and he only left Abbey Road last year. So he's been the longest surviving Abbey Road employee, which is... That's scary. Yeah, it is scary. <laughs> yes, it is scary. How many times he walked over the crossing, I've no idea, but quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Have you got a photograph, though? Yeah, oh, probably not, no, no. Peter. No. I mean, maybe he does have somewhere, but um, no, but he's, you know... Everybody was amazed that he lasted that long, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember your first day at Abbey Road? Uh, no. <laughs> there were No, I don't remember. Uh, although I can remember, I mean, I started in the tape library. There was basically a, a, a room upstairs where all the tapes were kept, and that was kind of your first job. So I can remember vaguely sitting down with Peter, sort of learning, you just learnt, how to write out a tape box and all this kind of stuff, where all the tapes went, the difference between a, a four-track tape and a stereo tape and a mono tape. You know, we we did that for probably a couple of months. And then one, you know, you, you got to become a button pusher, as they called us back then. And button pusher involved what exactly? A button pusher depended on what the sessions were, uh, but you basically helped set up sessions... You were responsible for all the tape machines, which in sort of Beatles sessions you had, you know, sometimes two four tracks, three stereo machines going. So you had quite a few things to do. On a classical session, you'd have two stereo machines, uh, maybe three stereo machines running. So that was quite involved if you had to change tape and they wanted to literally, you know, do another movement or whatever it was. You had to sort of whip the tapes off pretty quickly because they were very patient. And uh, so it was, you know, it's quite a lot of pressure. But, um, later, later on, on the Beatles stuff, of course, you were in charge of sort of tape flanging and phasing and sometimes editing. So, yeah, it was kind of, you know, quite involved. It wasn't just a question of sitting in front of a tape machine and pressing record. It was, you know, and you were sort of involved with decisions and, you know, you'd say you like something and, you know, they'd say no and then they'd say, oh, maybe not, you know, maybe Richard's right. On Beatles stuff, it was them, George, Jeff and I throwing our two bobs with him. Yeah. Because as a tape op, which for people who don't know, um, you're the guy that had to uh, drop, you know, drop in to record, then drop out. Yeah, yeah, dropping in, dropping out. I mean, even later on in life, I did the music for the Olympics, recorded the music for the Olympics in Sydney, and that was all done on Fairlight. And then at the last minute, they decided to um, extend a piece of music for the flags when the flags came in the uh, stadium. So we had to get the orchestra back in and record it, and the Fairlights had all gone out to Homebush. So the only thing we could record it on was a was a 48-track machine, Sony digital machine. And uh, all the sort of tape-op stroke Pro Tools operators were all sort of scared of this machine. <laughs> and uh, so I was dropping in live a 60-piece orchestra on this 
11 minute piece of music and it sort of took me back to sort of back then you know when the pressure was sort of really on i mean now you can record on pro tours and if you miss the beginning it's still there and you know you can get away with murder yeah yeah if, if you've just got one reel of tape it's um i mean when i think back on it now we used to you know just put the tape in the box and then go home whereas now the assistants are there for hours doing backups and this and that. Is there any clangers you did when you were dropping in and out? Um, probably. There's, I mean, there was there was some vocals I I wiped once on a song. I can't remember which one it was now. But uh, these things happen, and you know, I can't remember anybody getting really upset by it. But you certainly learn by your mistakes. I mean, you then check everything. I used to check everything before we dropped in. And, they said oh we're going to drop in on the second verse i used to make sure that you know i was in the first chorus and all that sort of thing so you just check things which which i think is very important for any sort of kids out there you know yeah double check everything never trust technology and double check everything you know yeah but you were working in those days of course with live drums which meant you were at the mercy of the drummer keeping time well that's right and i mean as it turns out uh ringo was pretty good um, I mean, I, I saw an interview with Giles Martin, and he was saying when he did the uh, Cirque du Soleil, um, he was editing between takes, and they would the tempo would be exactly the same, you know. Whereas, whereas a lot of drummers speed up, and especially in choruses, they speed up a little bit and then slow down and speed up, which is all part of live recording. But um, I mean, we had no clicks in those days; we just basically went for it, you know. Well, because the the first click is actually a metronome, so, you know. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we had a little metronome, but I think maybe maybe Ringo had one of those going by the side of his drums sometimes, but, I mean, he certainly wasn't sort of following it religiously. He's just a natural drummer that can play in time for quite a period of time, you know. Yeah. Do you remember the first Beatles track you worked on? Because you worked on literally no, hundreds, I think. No, but there's a book out that's got it all written in, but that's I've got that in storage, otherwise I could have looked that up. But <laughs> um, somebody somewhere wrote it down. It was something on um, mixing and fiddling around with mixing on Rubber Soul. And then I think the first actual recording live stuff was done on uh, Revolver. Well, they're my two favourite Beatles records, I have to say. Yeah. Well, Rubber Soul came out literally just as I got to Abbey Road. I think the the record was all recorded, but Norman Smith and George Martin were fiddling around editing and mixing and that kind of stuff. So that they were working on that when, when I started work there anyway. Yeah. What would the Beatles like to work with? Um, on a good day, great. Yeah. On a bad day, bad. <laughs> <laughs> like most people. But um, they were pretty good. I mean, late, later on, like on the White Album, they got a bit sort of tetchy. I think any band, I mean, any band that had been together for a period of time and gone through what they'd gone through, they were all into different music by then. You know, George had his Indian thing going. You know, John had met Yoko. He wanted to do avant-garde sort of stuff. So it was kind of hard times, but they sort of persevered through and, um, you know, came out with Abbey Road, which, although it's a great album, I think there were very few occasions when they were actually all there at the same time on that album. It was all done in bits and pieces. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I was watching uh, some videos before this and just watching uh, Lennon's mic technique. He seemed to be pretty good. I mean, by then, they'd probably 64, 50, so they'd been recording for three years by then. I mean, the difference, which, I mean, John was very impatient. He wanted to do it very quickly and not sort of spend a lot of time doing things, whereas the other guys were the opposite, I guess one would say. Yeah. Um, Paul was very fastidious and wanted, you know, would do vocals and George would do guitars over and over and over again till he was happy and... So, but John, John was the impatient one. So, I mean, they were great as a group and they were fabulous. I mean, there were great sessions amongst the debris. So what was the normal routine of a day if you were going in to uh, do a session? Uh, normal routine, well, if you were starting a song, whoever wrote the song would sort of play it to everybody, play it to George Martin on guitar or piano. Um, and then if it was John or Paul or John or Paul's song, they'd explain what they were trying to get out of it. And then we, they'd sort of decide what instruments, who was going to play what. Normally, nine times out of ten, whoever sang it wrote most of it. So um, a song like Julia, for instance, was a John song and Let It Be was a Paul song. Yeah. But in amongst all of that, could well be some lyrics that John would write or change. They yeah. change the lyrics along the way. So, what about the setup of the studio, though? What was the what was the crew? So, Beatles had two roadies, Mal and Neil, who set all the amps up, and there'd be drums with the little screens round. Towards the end, bass was quite often done last of all. Funnily enough, I mean, Paul would quite often play piano and do a rough vocal. Um, so quite often it wasn't bass, drums, guitar, it would actually be sort of piano, guitar, two guitars, piano and drums. Sort of sounds weird to imagine now, but that's kind of how we did it. Their early albums was just all done live, and then they might overdub a tambourine or a guitar solo or something like that. Um, so that was done very quick. I mean, their first album was done in a day, so... Which is a, quite amazing when you think of it now, isn't it? Well, it is now. I mean, now they can't even get the bloody counting done in a day, let alone... No, it's a different world. It is. It's funny, because I was talking to the guy I mentioned the other day, Chris Dickey, who's a mate of mine, who worked yeah. at Rack, and um, he, he one of his comments was that he felt that uh, Pro Tools has made everybody defer making a decision. Exactly. I mean... I mean, decision-making actually pushes, actually moves you along, pushes you along, puts pressure on getting it right, and I wouldn't have it any other way, actually. I just hate this deciding down the track, you know. It's just silly. It should be decided there and then, okay, we're moving on now. Like writing a book and sort of doing it all out of order and just writing a whole lot of pages and then trying to sort it out. I mean, you've got to kind of... You know, figure it out beforehand. There's got to be a bit of a plan, but that's kind of how things are done now. It's very frustrating. I mean, I I can't work like that. It drives me crazy. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, because that that is the world now. That is the world, uh, apart from a few people. I think Nashville is one place where they actually get a whole rhythm section in together and they can all play together. I mean, there's a few artists that do that. James Taylor's just got a new album out. I mean, he hasn't really changed. So it's only old geezers and um, maybe the, the White Stripes. There's a few few kind of bands around that like to record live. 
uh, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's all a part of a performance, you know. I mean, I thought it funny. I was watching the um, Eurovision Song Contest the other week, and how many of those singers just couldn't sing? They were so out of tune. And it just goes to show you how how Pro Tools is sort of, you know, you want to make a record? Oh, you can't sing. It doesn't matter. We can fix it for you. Whereas back then, if you couldn't sing, you didn't make a record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was all done live. I mean, everything at Abbey Road, definitely sort of 65, six, well, 64, 65, 66 started to get into four track. But uh, everything was a performance, you know, and it was a singer with an orchestra, it was a singer with the band singing live. The Hollies would do records singing live. Graham or uh, Alan would sing live with the band and then they'd do harmonies, guitar solo, and then that was done, you know. They were they were very good vocals, vocal group though. And it blend. I mean, they, I mean, they particularly were a great blend of people. But there was a bit of excitement on the record, and, and and that's kind of what's missing now. Everything's so sort of calculated that there's just no excitement. You know, yeah. you know, it's hard to get excitement when you've got a you know a click track going, and there's not a whole lot of people performing and working off each other. You know, which what all those records were. But the the other thing is a lot of people work remotely as well now, so you get some well, guy that's right. yeah, doing something one even in another country. Yeah, oh totally. I mean I mean the last Cliff and the Shadows album, I think Hank was here, he did his guitars here, uh Bruce and Brian did the tracks in England, uh and Cliff sang it in America. Yeah. It was kind of done all over the place. And when you hear it, it kind of sounds a bit like that. You know, it's not got the vibe that they once that they would get in the studio and, and, and you could never recreate that. That's why live concerts, if the singer can sing, are so good to go and see, you know. Are you doing a bit of bit of sewing in the background there? There is my yeah, there's a little bit of sewing. Is is that annoying? <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> There was a job posted at Abbey Road for uh, someone to head to Australia, and uh, you put your hand up for it. Yeah, I didn't initially. I didn't initially. I just, I, I, I mean, we all thought it was really funny. You know, we thought, oh my God, he'd go there. I mean, at, at the time, I'd worked with quite a few. Well, Cliff's manager for a start was Australian. There was a few musicians that were in England at the time that were Australian. So I had, you know, worked with quite a few people from Sydney and Melbourne. And um, I think I decided, Mum thought it would be a good idea. I thought maybe yeah, it would be a change. It was only for two years. So I thought, oh, that'll go pretty quickly. So to the sun I came. Yes, indeed. And that, that was to set up EMI Studios in Sydney. Is that EMI in Sydney, yeah. I had a kind of a two-year contract with them. And a um, bit of a shock when I first got here and realised you had to engineer and work the tape machine yourself, but that was life. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I had to go back to being a tape op again. I thought, oh, gosh, I spent the last however many years, three years being an engineer, and now I'm back being a tape op. But um, you kind of did both. So what was the studio like in comparison with um, Abbey Road? It was pretty good. I mean, they just got delivery of a new console, it wasn't as big as the console we had at Abbey Road, but it was okay. There was a kind of a dodgy console in one of the studios and a, and a, a new console in the, in the main studio or the, the big studio at EMI. So uh, I did a lot of my stuff there. And we had a uh, 16-track studio, which was good. 
yeah, it was it was uh, a pretty good situation. They had some quite good mics. There again, not as many, and the choice wasn't as good as at Abbey Road, but we sort of got by. Because I did notice in the uh, the Abbey Road, a lot of the stuff in Abbey Road, were, you were using a lot of U47s. Oh, gosh. I mean, thinking back on it now, I mean, we had rows of 67s and 47s, you know, loads of them. I mean, it was criminal to think back now. We used to throw these things around and not knowing now how much they're worth, you know. Yeah. I mean, they're like gold dust now. But um, we just had the the best mics money could buy, basically. I worked with some interesting people. I sort of did some stuff with George and Harry from the Easy Beats. was one of the first things I did. And, um, I mean, the sounds were different. I remember the snare, particularly the snare. There was a session drummer at the time that always used to say, oh, I love that snare sound, that European snare sound, Richard. Can you get that? You know, and he had a snare that was tuned so high that, you know, you and I, I said, well, you're going to have to tune that down a couple of octaves to get that sound. Oh, I can't do that. I said, well, you won't get the deep sound. It's not a bloody miracle. You know, I'm not a miracle worker. And uh, he sort of didn't quite understand that you had to tune it down to get a deep sound. So I guess the Aussie drum sound had a kind of unique sound. That was the one thing I did notice. But it's also a budget thing as well, because you can, you know, obviously... I guess so. I mean, yeah, I mean, here records were made a lot quicker than what they were at the time in England. I mean, at the time in Abbey Road, one would spend maybe three weeks or a month doing records whereas here when I initially came it was kind of like going back a little way in time as far as speed and everything but you know it wasn't archaic by any means but it wasn't quite the cutting edge of Abbey Road yeah well you had one huge success which was um Sherbet how's that which became a, a top 10 in England yes. and number one here yes that actually took quite a while to do I mean that took about a couple of months I mean, I probably spent more time on that than any album I'd done here, full stop. I mean, fortunately, it had some great songs on it, so it was just as well we did, you know. 2007, you did uh, the new version of Sgt. Peppers with uh, yes, a bunch of people. Yeah, I've sort of been, I've, I went back and had a really fun time doing that. And unfortunately, it never came out as a record, which was a drag. I mean, it was originally going to be just a radio program. So that's that was the original idea. And then somebody said, oh, we should really film it because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So they started to film it. Then the BBC sort of said, no, you're not having any more money. So we kind of finished the radio program and some artists didn't get filmed and then they were trying to get a record deal and oh, it just all became too hard. So unfortunately, a lot of it sort of it ended up being a bit of an underground album. Yeah. It was, we really had fun doing it, a lot of fun doing it. You got any good stories from that, those sessions? Oh, gosh. Where do you start? <laughs> exactly. Where do you start? Well, it was quite funny. One of the bands, and I can't remember which band... But they, they thought they were doing the opening to Pepper, the, the, the first thing on Pepper, but they were doing the reprise and they sort of came in and they'd learnt that. And they were terrific in the end. I mean, they didn't sort of spit the dummy or anything. They came over to me and I said, oh, no, we did that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> 
we did that yesterday with Brian Adams. Uh, no, you're you're doing the reprise. Oh, well, they told us we were doing the the opening. That's what we've learned. I said, well, you better go and get a CD and learn the. <laughs> so they were very cool. They were very cool about it. And uh, but you also worked with Oasis on that, who have always made claim that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that was that was interesting. Because <laughs> <laughs> they they're almost like you know, complete, a Beatles cover band. Well, that was very interesting, uh, and one of my regrets in life is goes with that story. But um, they they basically wanted to record at Abbey Road with the same console that it would have been done on originally. Well, the only person that's got one in England is Mark Knopfler. He didn't want to hire it out because that's in his studio. Lenny Kravitz has got one in New York. So 50,000 phone calls went on and basically his engineer came over with this console at great expense to the management and we set it up at Abbey Road and off we went. I mean, it was done very quickly. The track was done very quickly and the two brothers never spoke and it was very strange, but anyway. Wow. Oh, well, Noel did. Noel just Noel kind of produced it, I guess. But it was great. And then at the end of it, we all had a beer and sort of talked about this and that. And I was going out with a friend of mine. And they said, oh, do you want to come to the pub for a few drinks? I didn't go, unfortunately, because I, I think it would have been quite funny. Yeah. And uh, I spoke to the doorman uh, the day after. And he said, oh, they came back about nine o'clock and just played in the studio Beatles songs for about an hour and a half and then went home. I'm sorry I missed it all. Yeah, it would have been good to have rolled a tape over. Yeah, that's right. But that's that's life. Yeah, because I saw a photograph, and I don't know whether it was from that period or not, but it was sent to me by a mutual acquaintance of ours. Right. And it's a photograph of Paul Weller and Noel Gallagher. Yeah, Paul was there. Yeah, Paul came in. Yeah, and they were standing there looking over, and it was Jeff Emmerich was there. And I, yeah. I'm just wondering if that was you in that photo as well. We were all there somewhere. Yeah. But Paul came in, yeah, Paul came in to listen to stuff with his daughter, I think. And, um, yeah, no, it was a fun day. And it was done very quickly. I think Noel turned around and said, oh, I told the wife I'd be home about half past nine, but it's only seven o'clock. What am I going to do? <laughs> so that's when they decided to go and have a drink and then, you know, make it a bit of a normal session. Yeah. Probably got home about midnight. So what's your best memory or best story of working at Abbey Road? Well, I guess the most satisfaction was probably that, the, the night of All You Need Is Love, I guess. I mean, there was two, two big sessions. One was that and one was Day in the Life, the orchestra for that, and they were both done in the same studio. Those were kind of the most memorable sessions, I guess, because they were sort of so unusual. And uh, and there was a lot of pressure, and it was all done live, and it was very re- rewarding, I guess. I mean, it was rewarding knowing that that was, you know, there was like a hundred million people listening, but there was a lot of pressure doing it, you know. And there's probably other things that I'll think about once we finish. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> but I mean, there's yeah things like I mean Daniel Barenboim now a conductor stroke classical pianist I mean he came to Abbey Road when he was about 19 20 and he was like a child prodigy I mean he was fantastic I mean he would play piano concertos 
do an album in a day, no music, nothing. He'd just sit there and play and, you know, the the engineers and people who were sort of quite a bit old, the classical engineers were quite a bit older than me. They used to just look at him and go, wow, this is amazing, you know. If you had a choice, you wind the clock back and someone said you can work at Capitol Records recording Frank Sinatra or the Beatles, what would you pick? God. Well, I guess you'd pick the one you didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to have been. I mean, I've, I've got a Sinatra little box set that I just bought, and then looking at the pictures of that, and I've been to Capitol and walked down the corridor and been to the studios. So it's kind of the same as as, as Abbey Road. People that go to Abbey Road and walk down the corridor and see the pictures go, wow, you know, that was done here, and wow, the same thing is at Capitol. You know, they got Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Frank, Beach Boys say no more I mean it's uh, it's sort of interesting that each country had one studio where m- most of the stuff from the 60s was recorded yeah it's true isn't it that's quite bizarre when you think about it now yeah it's I mean basically Capital did all of Nat King Cole's stuff did nearly all of the Sinatra stuff some of it was done at a place called United Sound or United Recorders but most of the stuff was done at Capital. They're both institutions, and they're still going, which is amazing. Yeah, I remember a, there was Touch a wood. yeah, it was a Joe Jackson record done years and years ago. Yeah, at uh, that was at Radio City, but he recorded it live as they would have done, so staggering out yeah, the band. That was done in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a different way of recording because the louder the instrument, the further back away from the microphone. Well, that's it. I mean, I did a film once, and somebody said, "Oh, I just want to record it on one mic." just want to record it in mono it's just for a soundtrack you know it was only a sort of a short film 11 minutes of music and we kind of did it like that and it was sort of interesting where you put the mic and what you picked up on it i think we ended up having the mic a couple of feet from the piano and we had the sort of brass and woodwinds kind of sitting in a semicircle pretty much like how you would at capital the only thing you didn't pick up that great was the bass. And I think I actually cheated and said, look, we've got acoustic bass. Can I just put a mic in that corner? And um, so it was actually done on two mics. But looking at the old photographs of Sinatra working with the orchestra at Capitol, it's quite amazing. Well, he insisted on being in the room, not being in a booth. And when they came back, Al Schmidt told me when they came back to do the duets album, he said, I want to do it like we did it back then. I want to stand in the room, you know. And Al said, well, there'll be all this spill and everything. And and Frank said, sorry, I've got to be in the room, you know. And no headphones, nothing. You just hear hear the orchestra as it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Okay, before we end, there's obviously one question I'm sure everybody that knows anything about the Beatles wants to know the answer to, and it's two people's names. One's, you know, held in glory, and one is far from that, and that's George Martin and Yoko Ono. Yeah. Have you got... (laughs) These are two people that... uh, Well, one, of course, is Yoko that everybody, you know, accuses of breaking up the Beatles. No, she was... I mean, she was... I, I found her okay to work. I mean, I did the first John Lennon album, the solo album, and Yoko kind of spent most of the time in the control room with or without Phil Spector 
So it was kind of an interesting combination. And um, I found her all right. I mean, she had some crazy ideas and, you know, sometimes she'd be just told to be quiet and off we went. And uh, But, I mean, I never found her a, a distraction in the studio. But in saying that, girlfriends came to sessions, not all the time, whereas she wouldn't let John go anywhere. She would follow him, you know. He'd go to the toilet. She would come up the stairs and sit outside, you know. It was a strange sight. Wow. But um, then he'd come out and they both got back, go back down again. So the, so they were kind of inseparable. And that, I guess, because you've been in a band together for that period of time and it's you and basically the only other people were the roadies and us, that somebody else coming in was a bit upsetting for them. Yeah. So I wouldn't go as far as to say she broke the Beatles up, but she caused a little bit of, you know, tension there that probably wouldn't have been there had she not been. Yeah. And the other person is who is called the fifth Beatle is George Martin. Uncle George, we used to call him. <laughs> He's so old. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing hindsight. You know, we look back now, I mean... I was 18, Jeff was 21, George was 38, McCartney was 25, I think, 25. I mean, it's sort of frightening. Even the Beatles thought he was sort of so old, and he was 38. Now his son's older than him, older than he was. I mean, it's very weird. Yeah. But, um, I mean, a lot of the records wouldn't, wouldn't have ended up as they did without George's influence. I mean, he was he was a great help, doing harmonies, coming up with ideas, doing stuff, you know, half-speed piano, all these various things we did. But he was a bit of a, you know, I did everything. That was the only shame about it all, mm. is that he didn't sort of share a lot of the credit along the way. And Jeff and I kind of feel the same thing about that. Uh, but anyway, that's... Um, that's the way it has gone. So you don't have anything to do with any of them oh, anymore? Oh, no, no, I saw him. I mean, we had a... There was a 75th party at Abbey Road, and um, Jeff didn't go, but I, I went from here. Martin Benj, who used to work at Abbey Road too, used to manage Abbey Road. We both went over, and they had this amazing party in number one, All You Need Is Love was done. I thought, oh, there's going to be a whole lot of sort of dropkick singers and bands and whatever... And it was just basically for staff, and it was terrific. Oh. And there was engineers that I hadn't seen. Norman Smith was there. He didn't rec he didn't recognise me. Didn't recall me at all, which is very strange. He, he passed away about a year after. There was a whole lot of engineers I hadn't seen, and the only people that were there, other than engineers, were uh, George Martin and Yoko and Giles and George's wife. So so we had a bit of a chat, and he blamed me for uh, being deaf. He reckons it was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you where you get that idea from, because uh, you were sitting by the volume pot. You were nearer to the volume pot than I was. You know, I don't quite see the reasoning there. <laughs> yes. And uh, so, no, it, it, it was good. And so that was the last time I saw him. But it was, uh, it, was, it was a good night. So you have great memories of the Beatles? I do have good memories, yeah. 
Yeah. And do you do you see them the way a lot of people see them historically? That as as big as they they are and as influential as they. they yes, been? yes, I do because I can remember when we finished Pepper. I mean, everybody that worked on it, everybody that had anything to do on it with anything, and that's the Beatles and, well, I guess the five other, four other people, whatever it is, one, two, five other people that worked on it, apart from the technical people, mustn't left, leave them out, uh, were all very proud of it when it was finished and we all couldn't wait for people to hear it, you know, because we spent so long doing it spent like three months or something doing this record or even longer than that it went on and on and on it was good to get it released and see the reaction to it all these years later people still you know go wow how did you do that because we had to make decisions yes exactly we had to make decisions i mean that's it you know i get tape ops now or pro tools operators now that ask me you know do you want to keep that i said no I didn't want to keep it. We wouldn't be redoing it, you know. But they keep hundreds of these bad takes, which is a total waste of time. Yeah. You've just got to get one good one. I mean, I know you do depend on the singer, but you have to coax that out of the singer, you know. And fixing up a, a load of bad takes isn't my idea of making a record, you know. But that seems to be the way now. Now, I've, this is a really random question to finish off. Have you ever worked on a voiceover session? I have, yes. Yeah, well, when I was, I worked at Songzoo. I worked with them for about, oh gosh, probably about five years. And um, we had a music studio and a voiceover studio. I, I, I worked in the music studio, but every now and then I'd um, have to do voiceovers. And I didn't particularly enjoy doing them. <laughs> but um, That's not the answer we were looking for. <laughs> but then... <laughs> then in the end, well, I mean, I, I was a music man, so, yeah. you know, and I, I, I can remember when I first came to EMI, Bill Ramsey, the manager of the studio, sort of took me around and, and showed me their voiceover studio, and he said, oh, you'll never be in here, Richard, don't, don't even think about it. Well, about three weeks later, I was in there doing a voiceover, you know, trying to fly in vinyl, you know. Yep. It's like a nightmare. I mean, it's easier doing a 50-piece orchestra than doing a, a voiceover flying in, you know, duck and cow effects over a bloke talking, you know. But, <laughs> yes. uh, but people, people that do voiceovers do it standing on the, on the head, you know. I mean, I mean, when I say I don't like doing voiceovers, it's not my cup of tea, but on hearing stuff that's on television now, I, I sort of wonder where they've, what's going on there. I mean, some of the voiceovers I hear on station IDs, the, the balance and the sound of the voiceover sounds shocking, so I, I don't know what mics they're using. It's kind of the same as a singer, really. I mean, the voice is king, you know, he's the most important thing, and everything else has got to sit with it. And sometimes, you know, you have to EQ it a bit differently or... Or get a different voice, you know, if you've got this huge track and they they hire some sort of Nancy boy to do the voiceover, you know, it's never going to work. Yeah. It's, the, it's the same in music, you know, if you've got a little nylon guitar playing over ACDC, it's never going to cut through. So it's kind of everything, everything's, the audio's the same, it's sort of matching everything up and what works and what doesn't work, 
And I think there's a lot of voiceover stuff now that I hear that sort of disturbs me a bit on television. But anyway, I know a friend of mine, been at Abbey Road for about 10 years now, and he does film film soundtracks. And he went, he did um, one of these sort of American blockbuster things, you know. And he took the tapes over to America, I don't know where it was, and uh, just, just to oversee the mixing. And Peter was... Uh, appalled at the fact that the mixing guy just left the music there he didn't ride it or do anything and basically got drowned out with effects and all this sort of stuff and it wasn't the actual person that was mixing didn't really care about the overall thing they kind of you know dialogue is obviously the most important and the effects are pretty important too and the music kind of is in there somewhere but if it was a music engineer mixing that you kind of have to get everything in perspective you know yep and it's kind of a different it's a different mindset you know and sometimes i'd actually mix a final cocade or something like that that i'd done the music for and somebody else would record the voiceover but then it would come to me for for mixing and you'd have to keep writing it you know it's writing the voice because the only other thing to do is to keep pulling the music down, you know, which isn't isn't the object. Yeah. You sort of hear stuff on air now. That you think, whoa, who's done this? It is, it is hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. So if you had one vocal microphone, only one you could have, and this is going to be the last question, I promise, if there was one vocal microphone, what would it be? Mm. 47. Nice. Or a 67. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a favourite 67 in Sydney that I use, the, a 301 that I use on singers, and it sounds great. But a 47 is... is I, I did a... I hadn't used one for about 20 years, and I used one on some shocking ad with, with a girl singer on it. And I just looked at the VU meter when I put this mic out, and it didn't really need limiting, didn't need compressing. The whole vocal sat there within the 3 dB dynamic range. And I thought, wow, this mic is the business, you know. Yeah. And I just put a little bit of limiting on it, a little bit of compression. and uh, But it sounded so loud, which is the thing with microphones. You know, you can put four microphones on a singer and you put them all to zero, but the 47 will jump out of the speaker and you'll consequently, you can have so much more music behind it with a good mic than, uh, than if you'd used, say, a 57 or something. You just wouldn't get the volume on the voice. Mm. So the, the 47 is brilliant. So anybody listening, start saving up your pennies. Saving up your pennies. Mm. Even a FET 47 is pretty nice to have and I think they're, they're, I mean, they're making all these again but they're not quite the same as the originals Yeah, got a little bit of distortion on it which is all part of the sound I think. Which would be good for a singer but probably not so good for a voiceover Yeah I think yeah it is but it's it just gives you a lot of volume Yeah, put it to zero on a VU meter not a peak meter and uh, it just looks so better on a VU meter than 
a lot of other things are all peaky in various frequencies, but the 47 just looks great. Yeah. Sounds great and looks great. Well, I've got to shoot off to a session somewhere else, so... Okay, we'll turn it up loud. I'll I'll be in for a surprise and curious to see what they stick in front of me to talk into. Yes, yeah, well, if you don't like the look of what they're giving you, look around the room and... Well, the the, the amazing... I mean, a lot of people just don't try. That's the thing. They they don't try different mics and, and what works one day won't work the next, you know. Richard Lush, it's been a pleasure and, um... I hope we talk again very soon. Yeah, well, have have a nice session. I will. Okay. All right, beautiful. Thank you, Richard. Okay, bye for now. Bye. Cheers. Bye. The voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. Well, there you go. That was the interview with Richard Lush, and uh, I found the story about uh, Yoko and John Lennon very interesting indeed. Yeah, a bit of an insight. Yeah, huh? indeed. Yeah, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall at Abbey Road? I, I would. You know what? I would have just loved to have stood in the back of the room and just watched. Yeah. Imagine how much you could have learnt. It's just been amazing. Yeah, right? and it's the old, the old school of recording live. Look, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I started my career back in the days of sixteen track and twenty four track and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of things you talk about with with, I, and I use the word loosely, but kids these days who have sort of just fresh out of you know, recording school or whatever, and and you talk about things, you know, that were the sort of second nature back then, like you know, reverse reverb and all that sort of stuff, and they sort of look at you weird, like you know, what are you talking about? Yeah, is that you a know, Waves what? plugin? Yeah, that's right. How do I how do I do that with a plugin? It's sort of like, well, you know, you you, you can't really do it with a plugin. Yeah. Well, the, the other know? fascinating thing is you can find a common theme with the interviews that we've got lined up because uh, we've got another recording engineer, a guy called Chris Dickey, mm. who many wouldn't know, but the people he's worked with is quite amazing. So he's got yeah. some great stories. But once again, he talks about the same thing. Like mm. there's there's benefits, of course, with things like mm. Pro Tools. Mm. But the thing now, he's a teacher that freaks the kids out is when he actually gets them onto a two-inch machine and says, okay, we're going to start drop editing. And it, <laughs> it, it does their head in because they've got no waveform to look at. They, they, they don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Oh, dear. We sound like a couple of the old blokes from the Muppets sitting up on the balcony. <laughs> Boo! Uh, Boo! Now, talk about, talking about old blokes, we have uh, another one of, or oh, a vintage chap, we'll call him, mm. a man called Mark Grau. He's coming yeah. up next week. Now, Mark is uh, not only a voiceover talent, there's a lot of animation voices, mm. but uh, anyone in Hollywood would know Mark because he's got one of the big studios there. Uh, which he's had for over 30 years he's been running that. And Mm. he's got some great stories. So he's going to be our guest next week. He also has some pretty strong views about uh, SAG-AFTRA. So if anyone out there is a SAG-AFTRA member and they Mm. want to hear what he has to say about uh, voiceover rates, check it out next week on the VO Radio Show. All right. Well, uh, sounds like we uh, just about done a show then. I think you're probably right there. All right, we'll catch you next week. Time to put the push bike back in the bike rack. Don't know what that meant. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me. And don't forget to catch next week's show because we've got this. Voiceover extraordinaire and audio engineer, Mark Grau.